You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are going to be looking at... Bugs, Season 3, Episode 1, entitled Blaze of Glory. Episode synopsis. Kitty McCaig, techno-destruction artist, gets a birthday call, a day early, from her twin brother, Christopher. After the usual pleasantries, they complain about their father. Dad has forced his son into the family construction business, and he hates it. And he's shut out his daughter, and he disapproves of her idiotic, albeit lucrative, art. When the call ends, Christopher jumps from a construction crane to his death. Things are in flux for Team Bugs. Ross has invented a video doohickey and is now filthy rich. Ed is test racing high-tech bikes and gets in an accident, injuring himself. And Beckett is broke and has had all his assets frozen. It is this team that is urgently called to McCaig Construction, where a dynamite truck nearly exploded in the tunnel they were constructing. Ross has determined that a brilliantly designed gizmo was the culprit. This was a case of sabotage. Ed, asking questions about who might want to sabotage McCaig construction, meets Kitty at one of her art shows. There is a little mutual attraction in the air, but little useful information to be gleaned. Ed does learn of Christopher's recent suicide. At Roz's new mansion, Roz and Beckett analyze the device, but Roz has to dash because she's got a date. Ed arrives and starts to get a glimmer that Beckett's got some troubles, but Beckett won't talk about it. He also learns that the gizmo was brilliantly designed from tech stuff, and he gets the idea to ask Kitty if she knows anyone who might build something like this. At the construction site, they find a wall where no wall should be, and behind it, they discover a single missile and a warning sign from the Bureau of Weapons Technology from 1953. Ed, Beckett, and Kitty meet, but the only person she knows of that could build something diabolical like that is a woman named Roz Henderson. Ed and Beckett rule her out of suspicion. For now. Beckett has also served papers and has to confess to Ed that he's done something stupid with his ex-fiancee, and now he's on the hook for her massive debts. In the studio, Kitty learns of the missile from one of her agents working at her dad's company. They go to the tunnel to look and find out a much bigger storehouse of deadly chemical weapons. The next day, McCaig, who is keeping this all hush-hush because he's got deadlines, informs Teen Bugs of the missile he knows about. They arrange to do containment and remediation on it. Meanwhile, Beckett goes to the Central Office of Records and Archives in hopes of finding some documentation from the now-defunct Bureau of Weapons Technology. He meets with the Director of Intelligence Coordination. She shows him what's left of the BWT which is a sad little room with some file boxes and a low-level file clerk. She also knows about his current financial situation and tries very, very hard to convince him to come to work for her and revive the Bureau. She's so well-informed, and the timing of a job offer is so fortuitous that one could be forgiven for suspecting she arranged Beckett's woes just to entrap him. Beckett refuses the offer. In the end, she won't allow him access to the files unless he takes the job. He refuses again, makes up his mind to steal the information. In the tunnel, Roz and Ed have secured the missile and are taking it to an overpack container. Unbeknownst to them, Kitty has installed another one of her gizmos in the loader that Ed will use to carry the missile. Beckett mostly fails at breaking into the BWT when he is caught, first by the file clerk and second by the director of intelligence coordination. Beckett has a long jail term in front of him, but he did at least get the information he needed. The warehouse doesn't just have one missile. It has a huge stockpile. The loader goes wrong, stopping and then beginning to crush the missile. McCaig arrives without chemical hazard suit to save the day with some bolt cutters, but not before he's splashed with a nerve agent, killing him instantly. No, no, he's not dead, and Roz rushes in to the convenient on-site hospital. Ed, who has been further injured in the accident, remains behind and realizes the missile is now ticking. That can't be a good thing. In hospital after Roz leaves, Kitty shows up and gives her villain speech to her father. This apparently causes so much distress, he dies right on the spot. Now, taking an active role in the company, Kitty takes command of the salvage operation away from Roz. 
she sends in a robotic truck of her own design to rescue Ed and carry out the missile. It's just one problem. It doesn't rescue Ed. It drives itself into the stockpile of weapons and waits for the explosion. An explosion which will render the tunnel site completely unusable and ruin her father's company. Coincidentally killing billions of Londoners in the process, but you've got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Roz figures out what's happening and handcuffs herself to Kitty to force her to release the robotic truck or die along with everyone else. Beckett arrives, along with the apparently not dead but just resting the cake. Kitty relents, and Ed is able to pilot the vehicle out, get the missile in the overpack container, just in time for an explosion that is both a disappointment for Ed and the Legion of Bugs fans who keep track of such things. Kitty still really wants to escape the tunnel and Beckett realizes she couldn't have known about the exploding missile. It is the truck that is packed with explosives. Ed hops in and tries to drive the truck away while attempting to disarm it. He fails, but jumps from the truck at the last moment, and in the confusion, Kitty escapes. He is seriously injured, but taken to hospital for surgery. And that's when teen bugs learn that Beckett has enslaved them as the new Bureau of Weapons Technology. The end. I'm just going to say, and we'll get into it in the discussion, I don't like the way things are turning here, <laughs> but okay. So what did you think of uh, Blaze of Glory? Well, I do quite like the way things are turning, but that may be partly because this is this is kind of the bug setup that I remember. We're moving into the, the kind of arrangements that was what I, what, what I thought of when I was thinking back to bugs, and I was a little bit surprised that it didn't set up like this in season one. You know, so I was surprised when we started this rewatch that it didn't set up like this in season one. I also, I did quite enjoy this episode. Um, I I thought it had, it certainly didn't have any sci-fi elements to it. Uh -huh. It has a fairly thin kind of plot in terms of what the bugs are doing, but it has a pretty decent villain i thought and it licks along at a good old pace and the lead characters are all doing something slightly more interesting than usual even if it is just all kind of set up so all right well let me i i, I did enjoy it i did not enjoy the episode what i didn't really like and obviously i'm gonna guess i'm probably getting closer to the mark here because i have managed to avoid Spoilers about bugs. Um, so I really have no yes. clue what's coming up in this in the next two seasons. But it feels to me, first off, I'm going to say, before I lead into the things that I didn't think, I'm going to say those are the best Chekhov's bolt cutters ever. <laughs> right? I mean, usually it's like you have to show the gun in Act 1 if you're going to use it in Act 3. But the problem is they always ham-fistedly show you the gun in Act 1. But this was beautifully exercised with the bolt cutters being used in a perfectly logical fashion somewhere in the middle of the show. And it makes perfect sense that there's a pair of bolt cutters sitting around handy for them to use at the end. It's completely transparent. It's got to be one of the best examples I've ever seen of laying it down. That said, the rest of the episode felt like Chekhov's hammer over your head too. It feels to me like, one, there's going to be a romance between Beckett and Roz because he's clearly jealous. It feels like Ed is going to die. I am curious as to whether or not the actor was injured off screen. They explained why they had to give him a limp in the first episode. But, I mean, first scene, first episode, they had to injure him so that he's, he's limping around. However, Throughout the rest of the episode, they keep setting Ed up for being, I can't do the things I used to do, which boy, as an old man, I can really, I can really, it's like when he runs up the steps at Roz's mansion and he, he starts to dart up the steps like you used to when you were a kid and suddenly you go, ah, oh yeah, can't do that anymore. Okay. It, it <laughs> really feels like yeah, they're well, lining up his death warrant. <laughs> Bucks is all about reality. So yeah. Yeah. Kitty feels like they've set her up as uh, Moriarty to uh, Roz's homes. I don't know if that's going to go beyond the next episode or whether it's going to be she's the Jean Daniel of this season, but it sure felt that way. And also, I think 
Jan, and I'm using the name Jan for the director of intelligence coordination because I know that's what it's in the credits. I feel like she set them up. There's there's no way Beckett's name didn't come up when they were looking to redo the agency. She did whatever it was she needed to do to lock Beckett into this job. And I, I all those things feel like that's where we're going on this show. And I'll just add one more thing. You already mentioned it. This had the thinnest, this had zero veneer of science fiction in it. This was as, this was the most just spy drama adventure thriller they've done to date. And I, I hope that's not the new normal. I haven't, I haven't run back through all the previous episodes we've watched to compare it. So I don't know if it's the least sci-fi. I guess it, it feels a bit like clutching at straws, but if we've got to look at the kind of gizmos in this, it's the it it's actually more the Kitty's tech, the the little thing that goes zooming through the hydraulics. Yeah. That you know, that's yeah, probably that's... the most advanced thing in it. And even that is yeah, it probably wasn't it's it's not even feasible really... in the Yeah. It's well. It, yeah, it was. It's what I mean up. is, it's it, it's it's ahead of its time. In 1997, I don't know if you could have done that, but you could have done it pretty soon after. Could you? I, I'm not convinced that you could to put something in a hydraulic line that takes control of a vehicle in some way. I'm I'm having trouble with that. But even now, swimming well, through a hydraulic line, sure, it, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure that's. I'm not sure that's what's happening there, but. Because first off, they said this little thing made the, the the dynamite truck flip or something like that, and I don't see how blocking a hydraulic woman could do that. You, you just, I, I mean, it's just by applying the brakes suddenly or disapplying the brakes suddenly. So similarly, when they put this thing in the line on the loader, it both stopped the loader and it then caused the loader's clamps to. Open and squeezy, and open and squeezy. I don't it's like, think that. I don't think that was what was on the loader. I thought that she was putting in a, a different motherboard into the loader's control circuit. You, you, you see her changing over the jumpers, and the, I'm pretty sure there is a a separate circuit board that she has added. Okay, it's possible. I might have looked away in that instant, but because I'm thinking, how can you not see her back there, Ed? But. Yeah, and I wasn't quite sure why she was upside down because it didn't seem to make it any more difficult to see her. Or I mean, the fact really that she made it easier to see her. Well, exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, his looks cool. So hey, this is Bugs. Was this was this right after uh, Tom Cruise did that whole hangy thing in Mission Impossible? Well, that's a good and question, that. isn't it? It probably was around that time, but it, it wasn't uh, what immediately sprung to my mind, but. It would make sense uh, as the inspiration. Possible. Yeah, Mission um, Impossible immediately like up. Picks. Yeah, so I think you're think you're on the money there. We can do that. We can do this too. We're bugs. By the way, just uh, for reference in future, I'm I'm so pleased in a way. I'm not pleased and I am pleased that they're going to now be the Bureau of Weapons Technology. We can talk about how British hiring works vis-a-vis the way it does in the American government, which I think may be very different. But um, I, I hate the name Gizvos, as you know, which I think they've only used once in the entire show yeah. to refer to themselves. But for future reference, I will be calling all tech things that Roz and the good guys make as doohickeys and all things that the bad guys make as gizmos. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we differentiate them in, uh, in jargon. Gizmos, bad. Yeah, yeah, doohickeys, good. I'm not sure the doohickeys are British, though, and the bugs are British. Well, yeah, well, but they're progressive. They 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 they're international, and Spellchecker likes it. So, because uh. <laughs> I'm not using gizmos for the good guys. It's just no, 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 no. Well, that's that's um, fair enough. Uh, I mean, apart from most things, which you can't tell me, but I mean, I guess we could. Ask, I can ask the question, and I don't know if you know, but it was kind of odd that Ed got injured in the opening sequence and then Ed got injured more in a later sequence which kind of 
it says to me they had to give Ed a limp throughout the episode for a reason. And I'm wondering if the actor had been had been hurt and he was just literally at a limp and they had to incorporate it into the story somehow. And then the one at the end may actually be relevant to the story. Like I say, I, I have a feeling that Ed's numbers is up soon. But I mean, if you can't do all the stuff that Ed does, then what's his point? Uh, it just, it kind of has that feel like a curtain. Curtains for curtains for Ed, There's, but if you happen to, I mean, if you happen to look to find out if he got injured, because I'm not looking, I'm doing everything I can to not look to find out about bugs. I, I avoid IMDb except for the cast list, and even that can be a a, a minefield and uh-huh. you know, things like that. So I, but if you do find out that no, that, I would that huh? got hurt, that would I'd love to know that. That wouldn't I boiler me. I would recommend that you and anyone else listening who is following uh, following along and trying to avoid spoilers, that indeed you don't look at Wikipedia or any other details of the show. I also have to say there is not a great deal of information or what I think is very kind of solid information out there about the show. I'm not aware of there having been any I mean, there, there were there were novelizations of a number of the episodes, but there's no that I, I I don't know. There's been a sort of companion book that gives you the inside story and would have information about filming and that kind of thing, as the there often is on shows that. I mean, given that this ran for four series, it wasn't a complete turkey. It was it was a a prime time BBC BBC One show on a Saturday night. But I just haven't been able to find anything out there that gives that kind of information and the and the sources that I get, I, I, I don't know how much credence to give. And I haven't found anything I can that I'm also I am skirting a little bit around not wanting to give away too much information about where the show is going, but I haven't found anything about Ed having been injured or, or rather Craig McLaughlin having been having been injured in the process of filming this. And therefore, Ed having been injured within the episode as a means of disguising that. So it's possible, but I... And it reminds me of the Claudia Christian in Babylon 5, where she broke her leg and they had to incorporate it into the show. You know, if if it just wanted to get Ed hurt, they were going to do that at the end of the story anyway, it appears. So, well, I, I guess if... Well, if anyone listening knows anything about the filming, we would be interested to hear that and in terms of your other speculation about where the kind of head storyline arc is going i think we're going to put a pin in that and come back to it later okay (laughs) i will actually say one thing about a a behind the scenes thing that i do do understand there was a question mark over whether craig mclaughlin would return to the show for series three okay but but he's a big deal right he 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 was big somewhere, right? He's big in in, in Australia. I mean, yeah, I, I I don't I don't know why he was thinking that he might want to leave the show at this point because I'm not aware of him having gone on to any other big shows in the UK. Uh-huh. Whereas, well, actually, I have no idea what Jesse Birdsell went on to do. Jay Griffith has certainly had a had a reasonable career at this point. There. They, they've come from, I mean, he, McLaughlin was a big star of Neighbours. Jay Griffiths, they're all from Soaps. Jay Griffiths was from The Bill. Jesse Birdsell was from El Dorado. And I would imagine that they were hoping on the back of this to go on to big things, you know. I mean, other cast members from Neighbours have gone on to be international Hollywood stars. Uh, in fact, quite a number of them have, as well as kind of celebrated pop musicians yeah i don't know though whether that was what was behind mclaughlin's thinking at this point whether he wanted to you know break into america whether he wants to get bigger things in britain whether he wants to go back to australia or maybe you know it wasn't career related and he just got a bit fed up with having to spend however many months a year in the you know damp east end of london <laughs> well, uh, all right okay well that's i mean 
I'm not going to consider that spoilery, but if he was on considering leaving, I can certainly see them putting him in a plot line for for potential exit uh, it- if they got him back for a season. So that's thing. And I, I, while you mentioned London, it's London. They call it London specifically in this episode. They absolutely say that that thing is is a, a weapon store underneath the streets of London. So. <laughs> No more ambiguity about this. Um, we had a listener uh, uh, named Robin. Hey, Robin, uh, who commented on the Newton's Run episode. And he he wrote and he said, this is related to some of the other stuff we've talked about here. And obviously this is on an older comment. But here's an interesting, uh, this is from him. Here's an interesting insight into the positioning of the series I dug up from Colin Brake. I'm going to interject here. I don't know who Colin Brake is. Okay, back to it. Quote, uh, well, hang on. Let's just let's just clarify who Colin Brake is. Colin Brake is one of the writers, and I believe he is the script editor in series two and series three. Okay, I'm possibly the familiar, four. but I couldn't in it. Okay, so this is I'm back to quoting Robin, quoting Colin Brake. Quote: A few more pure sci-fi ideas are slipping in. It's a bit of a subversive show. It's a BBC One show on Saturday nights. It wouldn't be there if it was actually labeled science fiction. It only gets away with it by being action-adventure. But it's much more borderline than it was before. And that's from TV Zone, issue 79, June 1996. So, and also, uh, Robin says that the series was supposed to be set in an anonymous European city. Although they were happy to use London landmarks and they weren't consistent either. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have have a strong sense that they were deliberately using the East End of London because that was that was that was very up and coming. You know, the whole redevelopment of the Isle of Dogs and the Canary Wharf area. I'm sure we've seen the Docklands Light Railway. I'm pretty sure I remember commenting on it. Mm-hmm. Those yep. are very clearly tied to it being set in the east end of London. What we did have was, and I'm, it, it's a while since we discussed it, but so I can't remember exactly which episode it was. But we did, ha- it, we did have. Was it Technopolis? Yes, it, it was. Um, yeah. it, I believe it was actually series two, episode nine, titled "The Bureau of Weapons Tech" or whatever. Or it was the Cage of Satan, actually, yeah, probably the next one when they went to Technopolis. Uh, oh yes, yes, could yes, could could in, could indeed be the concluding part of that. But yeah, Technopolis, the kind of weird new city that is very much this kind of, you know, it was, it was not clear what country that was in. It was yes, anonymous European makes sense, but home turf. To my mind, mm-hmm. is London always has been London. Uh-huh. So, in this, as you said, the plot is kind of a little bit. It's a bit light. Dad's a dad's a walking Monty Python skit, and he is horrible to his son by forcing him to be what he doesn't want to be in the construction business. He's a horrible businessman from the standpoint of being an absolute Monty Python skit. And of an industrialist. And, you know, he he disapproves of, well, I don't know if he, dis- I assume he disapproved of his daughter to begin with, or he's just so sexist that it's like, oh, girl, can't be in construction. Uh, and so she is on the disfavored side of the family. And so then she goes off to do really, really dumb art, but, but successful at dumb art, which... And uh, dad can't approve of that either. So, you know, she's got a chip on her shoulder. And, you know, she's just, uh, she's trying to, to destroy dad. But I, I really did feel like they were setting her up as as an ongoing. Because, particularly because of the line when Ed asks, do you know anybody who could do anything like this? She goes, oh, I've heard of this person called Braz Anderson. Uh, it's just like, it just has that feel of the scene where, you know, Holmes is like, there's only one person that could do something like this. It's... Moriarty is the name I hear. It it just you're just getting it from the opposite end of the equation there, assuming that Roz is not actually bad, um, and that Kitty is is the uh, the villain. I guess probably, yeah. 
But, but uh, I, yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I think, I think Kitty is definitely villainous. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on a second. She blows stuff up and people pay her big money for it as art. She blows up London. Wouldn't somebody pay her a lot of money for that? I mean, on the same principle of stupid art? I'm sure there must be somebody that would go, you know something? I like the looks of it better now that it's covered in caked in dead corpses killed by uh, a nerve gas agent. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, here's 10 million pounds or, or something. I, so, I mean, it's art. It's not evil. It's art. Surely we, we can draw the line here and say that they are, they are establishing that this is just, this is just art and art is neither good nor evil. It is simply art. I don't think that this episode has very much to say about art at all. What I do <laughs> think, what I do, what I do think, and and this, you know, I think this goes slightly to the having your brain in idle while you're watching Bugs. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, it, is, okay. it is, it is, it is, it is possible to enjoy when it gets these things right. The fact that yes, Dad is kind of a, a walking Monty Python sketch, but there's. There's a a dynamic and a, and an equilibrium to the the way in which they have set up these relationships that actually gives you what you need within the kind of fifty minutes of the episode playing out. That no, these are not characters with great depth, but yes, they are characters whose motivations we understand, and actually they have more interest than your standard cardboard cutout villains so I, I mean i do think this is partly down to the performance of leslie ash which um is is interesting casting at this point might come back to that but it's actually also i do think a cleverly written character because you open with this is and and not just cleverly written but also kind of confident in the tonal shifts that go through this this is this opens with kind of irritating bad artist who you you know instinctively dislike because sort of kind of showy vacuous side of the kind of Britpop art that was <laughs> all in vogue at the time and then you get the you know you get the stuff about the the brother and not just the brother but the twin and what they're doing by setting up this villainous dad is they are creating a motivation for her which is slightly more interesting because they're saying yeah she was kind of passed over by this guy who was a sexist and really you know genuinely has driven her twin to 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 the point where he has killed himself and so there is a kind of interesting motivation there not that it excuses the evil that she does but it makes her a more compelling and enjoyable character particularly because you you know along with it she's got this kind of charisma and that sells those scenes where ed is obviously kind of quite taken with her it makes all that uh, you know makes that kind of understandable for me i i will i will i'll give it this um i feel like the writer was very good with economical conveying of of what's happening in the characters so for example the brother's on a construction site he calls his twin sister right we establish in dialogue that they both have a birthday and he's calling to wish her a happy birthday the day before and the instant they said that the instant that came up i'm like he's about to kill himself because why would he call huh. the day before unless he wants to avoid the birthday itself, which probably involves his dad being his dad. Like, like it was, it was that. And like, that was, that was very well timed. It's like, it's, it's an odd, you know, it's irrelevant that it's their birthday in the grand scheme of the story. It's just that it gives you an insight into the mindset of this guy. It's like, what, why, why does he call the day before that? I mean, I don't have a twin. I don't have a, I don't have any siblings, so I don't know if you even call them on their birthday and say happy birthday, but I would do it on the birthday. And if I had a twin, I don't know. <laughs> well, if I don't I, think there are any I don't rules. But... I, I don't think if I had a twin, I would. I would. I, I, I don't know. I'm like, 
well, it's your birthday. It's my birthday. That cancels it out. I don't need to call and wish you happy birthday. You don't need to call me and wish me one. But I, that's, I'm not the person to do it, but, but it did. It, it triggered something. It's like something's, something's amiss here. And I think he's, I think he's about to kill himself. And then it kind of clocked. It's like, oh, he's on top of a tied crane. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He's, he's done for. I have to say that it so, was the crane. I, I totally missed all that. You know, your your logic around the birthday makes sense to me. I just, you know, none of that registered with me. The fact he was at the top of this enormous crane and they bothered to, you know, set the set set it up with him in the cabin of this thing. That was what... Oh, I thought he was going to get killed. For me, I, I mean, when I saw the crane, I thought he's about to be murdered somehow, like with some high-tech gizmo where the train crane goes crazy and flings him off. But then when they got to the dialogue on the birthday that it... It just pivoted in my head. It's like, no, it's self-harm. It's that's that's where it twisted on me. I, I did really appreciate the budget. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that he took his helmet off before he dove, just in case that would have saved his life. I like I like <laughs> that because of the dropping it, the you know the vertigo effect. I thought it was actually very. This is partly where I think it comes down to the they're they're willing to go somewhere tonally different from where they've been but it was quite dramatic and well filmed and part of that was dropping the helmet gave you a sense of the height and made me feel even more vertiginous than just the idea of walking along a yeah. crane like that so it was effective yeah I, I just my thought was like yeah you, you don't you don't want to be wearing that helmet because when you hit you don't want to survive this you definitely don't want to survive this that's uh that would be worse, I think, in many ways. I should, I should mention, since you say the writer of this, that that um, the episode's written by Stephen Gallagher, who I think we have talked about before. Well, I know we've mm. talked about before because we've talked him, yeah. about him in relation to the eleventh hour, and the 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 fact that he has been credited alongside. I, d I don't quite understand what the credit means, but alongside Brian Clemens. The, the the kind of I was going to say the creator of the Avengers of course he wasn't but he was uh, a significant writer and producer on the Avengers and as we have discussed his name is associated with Bugs he is credited at the beginning of every episode as being series consultant and I don't quite understand what that credit means but that is the credit that Stephen Gallagher has also been getting while um, Colin Brake has been credited as the script I'd say script editor, but I think they call him script executive. So I I think Gallagher has a bigger role in creating the kind of series arcs than just being a, a writer on some of the significant stories. But he has written some of the significant stories. So he did write the you know the finale to season one. He did write the finale to season two, and here he is writing the the opener and mm -hmm. the setup to series three. Yeah, I think they're. I you know it feels like they're doing a little retooling at the at the beginning of the episode, and maybe that's why Clemens has been brought back to actually do some credit work on that. Um, I have no idea if he had more or less work on uh, more or less input than on this episode or this series than he did on any of the other episodes or any of any right. of the previous series. Oh, it sounded like he got some sort of writing credit on this one. By your he gets credit on every episode as the series as consultant. consultant. Okay, I, I thought I thought the way you were saying it that he, in this one he got he also got some co-written by or no. something with with Gallagher. He, no, okay. no, no, no. Okay, no, he 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 gets he gets series consultant credit all the way through. I think to the end, but I'll we'll have to wait and see because I'm not going to look ahead now. But he has been getting that credit, and I think. I mean, we noted this at the time. I think it was from around about series two. Stephen Gallagher has been getting the same credit. Yeah. But Brian Clemens hasn't written any of the episodes where Stephen Gallagher has. That, that has a feel of, of contractual obligation or, or, or maybe, okay, that, that, might, that might come off wrong. So, for example, uh, the, the TV series The Invaders, uh, the creator had some creative disagreement with the production company and he left but because of the contracts he had to get credit on 
every episode, even though he had nothing to do with the rest of the series beyond the first, I don't know, possibly even the pilot. I'm not sure. On Babylon 5, Harlan Ellison gets creative consultant. I think it might be creative consultant. I, I forget what his title is. He never did anything for the series except perhaps have a few talks up front with Straczynski. And they put his name on there because two reasons. One, well, three. He agreed to it as one of the reasons. But uh, he, the name Harlan Ellison carries weight with selling a show and science fiction so they put him on there and, you know, might get him some money for doing little or nothing. So it could be that, that Clement, you know, Clement's name is big enough that they just want that name on there. And, you know, he sits down and has a chat with Gallagher for a while and about things they might do. And okay, you got your credit. I don't. And, and you're on. I, I, don't, I don't think that Clement is getting credit for not doing anything because I don't think... Nothing. Formal. I mean, this. In other words, consultants. This, is, could what, just this be is why I'm waiting for the for the um, research that someone is going to do properly into the kind of background and the production of this show, so that we can just sit here and enjoy watching it and and speculate about what's going on behind the scenes. But what I can say, I don't think this counts as research. But what I can say um, from having watched it at the time was that I don't think that Clemens' name would have carried that kind of weight. I don't think it's the sort of thing that would have necessarily been that prominent in Radio Times or whatever. But I do think that you can see, and again, this falls under speculation, but I do think, I mean, it's stuff I've discussed when we've talked about previous episodes, that you can see the influence of Clemens on the setup and the comparisons were were made. I guess it was mentioned at the time, but it, not in a way that I think would have necessarily justified kind of putting Clemens' name on the credits. The The comparisons were made with the Avengers, and I think it's the new Avengers. And that makes me think that Clemens' involvement would have been in trying to advise on how the dynamics in the new Avengers worked, which I, I think they did work. I mean, that show gets a lot of criticism, but I still keep coming back to it despite some pretty ropey stories because the chemistry between the the trio is incredibly effective. And we've got a trio again here. <laughs> and there is sort of a sense in which here you've got... Roz, Roz is the sort of Purdy character, the one who is incredibly bright and you don't mess with yeah. Beckett he's definitely not Steed but yeah. he's perhaps the most formally dressed let's put it that way and yeah. I think the kind of parallels between Ed and Gambit are that Gambit was intended to be the kind of action figure although I don't think that McNee liked being sidelined but 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 Gambit was but uh, Hunt Gareth Hunt was much younger and so they were putting someone in who could do that stuff and although I don't think there is that difference in age here between, you know, between McLaughlin um, <laughs> and Birdsall, I think the intention there is that Beckett is more of a kind of uh, a spy figure and, and someone who is more involved in the, not not that he's not handy with his fists when he needs to be, but more involved in the kind of um, backroom office politics right. business of, of um, spying, which is kind of evident from his relationship with quote Jan in this episode whereas Ed is Mother. clearly the action man which I think is being reasserted in in the, the the kind of sequence with Ed riding the motorbike so yeah I and you've taken the word out of my mouth I think that what we are seeing if Clemens is involved in in the kind of rejigging in series three what we are seeing is the mother dynamic coming in there absolutely for sure i think we're seeing the heightening of some of the some of those character traits although i would say steed would never have been defrauded in the way that beckett was whereas yeah. i can kind of imagine gambit would be so yep yep i can see mm. that but also in the in the introduction of the character who 
Roz sells her TV Channing. credit card thing to Channing. That was it. Of course, I should have remembered it, given how many times Beckett said the bloody name. But, um, be, be, because I think the New Avengers dynamic already had a, a kind of... that There were undercurrents of jealousy, etc., because of the three-way thing between Stephen Gambit and Purdy. And I think that's the kind of role that... Or the, the, the shift that Channing has been brought in to kind of catalyze here. So what about our fourth member of the trio now? Because I'm not convinced in any way, shape, or form that we've seen the end of their clerk, who is Alex. now no doubt... Alex is now no doubt going to be a regular member. They would not give her Kung Fu, uh, Karate, whichever <laughs> martial arts she is in, if they didn't intend to add her. I mean, they need a file clerk at their, Indeed. At their office. So um, they certainly I, do. I think, I think she's number four. Um, I, I hate the thought, but it's just not impossible that if Beckett is now got the thing for Roz based on his reaction to Channing, you got to give Ed something, so Alex might be for her or for him. I don't, I don't know. You might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. I, you can't I, comment, but I I can. Okay. <laughs> well, we're we're that. avoiding we're avoiding spoilers. We're avoiding I spoilers. Yes. I deliberately yes. haven't mentioned. I deliberately haven't mentioned Alex because you know, yeah, not commenting on. Fair that. enough. But um, but, but I give my know, feeling yeah, that you, she'll you, be back. You've made the point, so I think yeah that that's a that's a valid point, and I, I, I yeah I agree. I think she's too, she the the character is too interesting for the few scenes that she has in this episode. Let me yeah. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just go ahead and talk about uh, MI five and a half or whatever agency it is that they're working for here. I. I We've talked about the fact that there's been virtually no government involvement like the police, with the exception of the Bureau of Weapons Technology has popped up a couple of times here and there. They wipe them out, which they did. They they absolutely did wipe out, I guess, everyone that worked there. Flip <laughs> that all right, fine. I I'm not convinced that if a government bureau I won't use the word agency, which is what comes to my mind, but a government bureau is wiped out. Don't they have like an HR department where they can just sort of, I mean, you don't need, you don't need to hire the, the, the Uber weapons expert to be the head of Bureau of weapons technology. That's not the way those things work. You hire somebody that can build a team, right? Then they, I they admit, start the process of recruiting, but I, well, I don't know. It feels to me like they, they needed Beckett for the, because he's, experienced in the field as opposed to being a good team builder because I don't think he's a good team builder he didn't even build this team Ross built this team but it just it's like I I mean again we we're talking in spoilery territory this whole thing with Beckett feels like a setup from the word go the, from the moment that Jan said I'm surprised your name didn't come up in our search it's like yeah it didn't come up in their search sure it didn't it came up first, and they said, how are we going to get him back in? And they said, let's have a little chat with Amanda. Ah, and they they arranged that whole thing and took him down and brought, brought him so low he had no choice but to somehow indenture two other human beings to their their job. I don't think there's any any kind of subtlety in the fact that you're supposed to get the impression about Jam that... She is quite Machiavellian. How, but how does he get Ross and Ed working for her? How, how could Beckett... We, we shall see. <clears throat> okay. Okay. But, I mean, I guess they could just put... All right, sorry, if those two don't come to work, we're just putting you in jail for 35 years. Well, off you go. And maybe they would feel like, oh, fine, I'll work for him. But uh, that's just... Um, I, I, I will say that there, there was a line that I thought was pretty darn funny in this episode and that's when Beckett says well you know once you're out you're out and I thought that literally is the opposite of every spy cliche in the book I was out and then they dragged me back in 
I can't even, I've heard that so many times. I can't even tell you where it comes from originally because it's, you know, look, it's such a cliche about the retired spy that you don't ever get to retire. They're going to bring you back. So I thought, really? You believe that? You believe that, Beckett? I literally watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy straight after this. So I is, that, is that where it originally comes from? I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I know. I don't think. I mean, it's it's certainly it, not the line that you said, and I don't even know whether the line is. I wasn't exact quoting that. Yeah. I don't know whether it's in the book, but there's a line in the film where Smiley turns to Lacon and just says, "I retired." And you think, yeah. Which 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 bad Bond film was it? That was that one too. Was it more than one? No, no, it was like Daniel Craig at, it must have been, oh, it was Skyfall, so it wasn't as, it wasn't the worst by any stretch of the imagination, where he had gone off and, until he was useful again. I thought <laughs> it was No Time to Die as well. It may have but been, yeah, probably was. Yeah, 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 probably was. See, it's such a cliche. <laughs> like, it was like, we could, okay, that was a bad one. All right. So, so I was right. It was one of the bad Bond films. There we go. Um, it was two of the good Bond yeah. films. Skyfall was no time to die. I, I think we're probably not going to discuss this right now. No, 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 no. No, well, I did figure out the, while I was watching that film what it is I don't like about the Daniel Craig films, even though some of them I enjoyed. And that is they're not fun. But uh, the sense of fun was died somewhere. Along I can tell you, I can, I can think of very few things that are less fun than watching Moonraker, but um, I, yes, I'm not sure that uh, we're going but to reach a consensus a on, on the Bond <laughs> for things without without uh, going all night on this. So, yeah, fair enough. Um, it's just because we don't have a whole lot to talk about in this particular episode. We, I will ask, what the heck was the idea for the Bureau of Weapons Technology to have built a ridiculous weapons store underneath London. That's one. But we did actually see in Newton's run that they'd already built a ridiculous weapons store in London. But, okay, in the 1950s, they built a ridiculous weapons store in London, and then they put a bunch of ridiculously deadly weapons in there, and then they had a whole bunch of extra space where they just left one deadly missile sitting in the middle of the floor with a sign that says off limits bureau of weapons technology 19 was that like a scarecrow you're supposed to see that and go oh better get out of here and <laughs> i know switch your brain off but it's just really weird it's a really weird way to leave this facility especially since the bureau continued on until 1990 five or whatever it was That's, that to me is the is the weird the weird thing about it because we've we've encountered the bureau of weapons weapons technology in a way that made it feel like it was a kind of throwaway department that was created for the specific needs of that plot at uh -huh. the end of series two and now not only is it car carrying on in a sort of coming back from being completely wiped out sense but also it's got this enormous backstory which suggests that it's been around for at least 40 odd years and mm -hmm. that seems a bit kind of weird i can't picture what the history of the bureau of weapons technology actually is and they're rubbish at their job i'm just gonna say if you've left yes well we do we've already <laughs> established that yeah <laughs> it's got them killed for being rubbish at their job but yeah they've, they've apparently been that way for a long long time yeah do you have anything else on this i want to comment on I, I meant to say this earlier but i want to comment on your um moriarty thing and i'm not going to say much because it's kind of veers into spoiler territory but i think it's potentially there is a dimension to the line that you're referring to that is another kind of clemency thing where by having the villain say they've heard of Ros Henderson it's kind of building up our lead characters it's kind of saying Ros isn't just someone who entertains us you know because because we get this kind of secret view of 
what you know what amazing things she and her buddies do but it's actually creating a kind of legend within the show for her that's a bit connected with so she's steed possibly she is actually closest to steed she's suddenly now got this new flat which is much more kind of i don't know if i want to say stylish i'd say it's much more refined than her previous flat which was quite a statement but this she's on millionaires row now well exactly well exactly so i both both kind of Roz's status there and the fact that kitty has heard of her i think are a deliberate kind of way of increasing her status within the show but i didn't object to it in this episode but it's one of the things that i think became a problem for the Avengers in the sense that early on, certainly in the kind of Hendry and Gale eras, they, they, as in, you know, the, the Avengers would investigate some kind of crime that was going on and they would often go undercover and they would not be noticed. Whereas later in the Avengers, so later Peel era, and certainly by the time you get into the new Avengers, the villains aren't just going about committing crime unless the Avengers come and stop them. They're deliberately attacking the Avengers. They're trying to, you know, the the plots are no longer just about ta- taking over the world or something fairly trivial like that or, or spying on the, pretending to be invisible in order to spy on the British embassy. The Instead, the the plots have become, we are going to discredit Steve or Steed, or we are going to take down Emma Peel because of what she did. It's they they become personal targets uh-huh. because their status has become so important. It's like what we're supposed to think is that the the Russians are sitting there spending all day thinking. How can we take out Steed? Because if we take out Steed, the entire British security service or the the intelligence service, whichever it is, is is going to crumble without him. And to me, that's that that's kind of it's 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 a bit self indulgent. It's much more inward looking. Yeah. It's less satisfying than the kind of stories where they are just doing a job, albeit very good at doing a job. And I I'm hoping that. I can't remember very well, but I'm hoping that Bugs doesn't go too far in that direction. Yeah, I. It, there's a danger when you have a, a team of people or a particular person or whatever who is doing a job that's supposed to be, you know, it relies a certain amount on you not knowing who they are and yeah, spying or stuff. I, mean, I, I'm still, you know, I still cringe every time back on the Bond thing diamonds are forever you killed james bond is that who that was it's like like does everyone on the planet know who james bond is by 1971 or like it's like he's not a very good secret agent then anymore is he it's like oh james bond just showed up we'd better not do anything wrong yeah and and yeah it felt it kind of felt that way with steed at some point uh, along the way, it's like oh, Steed's on the case. So, uh, well, I don't, I don't object to the fact that you know you might recognise there, the, there are going to be entire sections of MI6 or whatever who are going to be monitoring all the all the Russian attaches and anyone you know any sure. foreign diplomat. They're going to have they're going to have files and they're going to know who they are. You know that that's kind of that's fine. That's what the business is. It's more the fact that they're you know, they literally have three pictures on their desk and it's, you know, it's Steed and Gambit and Purdy. Those are the <laughs> yeah, biggest no. threats to, to Russia. And that that's that's the thing that kind of just seems a bit silly and self-indulgent. And I don't think bugs have gone there yet. I mean, they've been silly and self-indulgent in all sorts of other ways, but they're not quite that big-headed. Whereas now... Ross is definitely a big deal. Yeah, I guess we are at least acknowledging the fact that if she's so darn clever, why isn't she rich? Why is she doing this job that she does? So, 
Now she's got the yeah, money that, to pay the, for that's it. That's the positive and spin. And a steady job. But, and she's got a, a steady job now with a salary probably and pension. Well, I don't, yes. I don't All know the umbrella to... guns you could, you could handle. Yeah. I don't know how steady it is, but but I but I I think I think what we have seen is that elevation. I mean, I've talked about Rose's status being elevated by Kitty's comment, but actually, Jan seeking out Beckett—that's a vote of confidence yeah. in Beckett. It's probably one that I'm not sure is justified, but still. And also, <laughs> the guys who want who want Ed to test out their motorbike again—that's a kind of yeah. Ed is your guy, so yeah, this guy um, should be professional racer. He's so good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's okay in as far as it goes in this episode, but I don't want it to become a thing. Yeah. I, I'll I'll say this for Beckett though. You know, I think we had we had this discussion back in Out of the Hive. Wow, I can't remember I rem- can't believe I remember that name. But okay. That Beckett was right. Beckett discovered the problem. Beckett solved the problem. I mean, yes, he had help. Don't don't get me wrong. But, you know, as as the guy on the inside, he had the right instincts. He ferreted out the bad guys and solved the case. And now the hive want nothing to do with him. It's like you would think the hive would go, let's promote that boy. But but it doesn't work that way. And even if he quit voluntarily and said, Nah, you know, I got this other job I want to do, that's fine. You'd still think that they would be kind of uh, saying, you know, he he does know what he's doing and he is competent at what he's doing. So this doesn't actually surprise me that somebody would go, well, here's a guy that's got the experience and he's got, of course, if we don't realize that he's trying to bring, that Jan's trying to bring the team in at, at the beginning. But yeah, he, he's qualified and he's competent and he's he's been doing a good job. Sure, I, I could see that. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be the superstar to run an agency like that or to any agency it's just just they need bodies they need a hr person that at least can understand what's going on and then hire the people to to do what they need to do the specialists but anyway yeah they might be embiggening them for the for the next season for this season the other thing to to mention from a probably from a british perspective i don't know how recognizable she is leslie ash as kitty mckaig I don't recognize her. So at this point, I think Men Behaving Badly has been running for about five years. I don't know whether you'd even have heard of Men Behaving Badly on that side of the pond. Is that uh, Martin Brooks? Martin Brooks, it's, is that the name? No, that's it's, not right. uh, Martin Clunes. Clunes, yes, there we go. Doc Martin, that's why I was confusing him. Got it. Yeah, so... I, I have not ever seen an episode, but I have heard of it. It was it it became quite a, a a popular sitcom, and were kind of uh, cast changes early on. You 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 end up with kind of four main leads, one of whom is Leslie Ash, and so she will be at the at the point at which this episode airs, she will be very well known for comedy, and so this is kind of a slightly different role for her. And I think I do. I mean, I've said this already, but I think she's really good in this. I think it's, uh, I think it's a very kind of energetic performance, and it sells the kind of the what the appeal of this otherwise perhaps quite irritating or unpleasantly vengeful woman might be to Ed in those scenes where he is clearly attracted to her. So. For me, where I think a lot of the villains in Bugs have been really quite disposable, she is near the top of the pile. Well, Moriarty would be. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't, you know, I don't know if they want to repeat the experiment that they had last season with an ongoing villain, but, you know, if if so, this is, they've set her up for that. She has the technical skills to be a, a... challenge to them and the the unpleasant backstory and you know the motive of revenge now yeah yeah it's, i mean i just i find her much more interesting i think jean daniel is actually a, a moriarty so if they're doing i'm i'm not going to answer your question but they, 
if they were doing Moriarty, they're, they're repeating themselves. I think in Jean Daniel, they have actually done it. And actually, to be fair, what I was saying about shows getting to the point where the villains no longer focus on just committing villainy until the heroes come and stop them, but actually get too focused instead on revenge, that's kind of already happened in Bugs with Jean Daniel. It's the only instance where it's really happened, but it, it certainly he he elevated their importance by making them the focus of his insane revenge schemes. Yeah, which is what his downfall was, as as usual. Um, if he hadn't involved them, he probably could have uh, pulled it off, but uh, but he had to involve them. I will say this though: Kitty is already a villain who is motivated entirely by revenge. It's what made her a villain. Yes, but revenge not against the bugs. I mean, no, but that's that's, that's her point. mo to begin with. Now she can just transfer that off to Roz. <laughs> that, that creative, artistic, uh, uh, techno destructive uh, mind of hers. Uh, it it you know it's not like Jean Daniel who was this master planner who made up villainous things to make himself money. And then he got derailed from that by going on his, by incorporating revenge into it. This is somebody who's just a villain because they get nasty about things and, and want revenge. So we'll see. She's got to be in it for one more episode, if nothing else, because they let her get away. I think the ending is a, is a setup. She just, yeah, she yeah. just disappears. You don't do that unless your character's coming back. Now, I will say, and... We didn't discuss this at the outset of this, but you and I discussed this yesterday. At least it was yesterday for me. I don't know. It might have been this morning for you. Um, but <laughs> it was yesterday for me too. That this might be a two-part episode. That's true. Uh, so, there, are, I, there are some refer- references in the TVDB where you know my Plex server pulls the pulls the data from. Clearly labels this part one of two. And this is this is part one of two, but. You contacted me and said, well, I watched it. It kind of felt like it might be a two-part, but it's self-contained. And I agree. It does feel like this was, this feels like this was the end of an episode in a serialized TV series or a semi-serialized TV series, kind of a la Babylon 5. But at the end, there's a little bit left undone that, you know, we're going to have to look at later on. That's... Yeah. So I don't know. So... I, I'm I'm going I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep the kind of specifics to a minimum here because spoilers. But what what kind of made me want to deal with this episode on its own was that I think in series two, what goes up and must come down are very clearly a two parter with mm-hmm. a cliffhanger in between. Yeah, I think the same thing is true of the Bureau of Weapons and Cage of Satan. This episode does not end with a cliffhanger. But it does end with a number of loose ends. I'm not going to be yeah. specific about these, as I've said. But the reason it ends up with a number of loose ends is you put your finger on it. It's semi-serializing. It's there are there are arcs that are going to run through this series. It's almost analogous to the kind of setup that we got at the beginning of series one, where you get a story. And in amongst the story, you get the kind of initial setup, and you're not quite sure how it's going to fall out until series two. Now, I can't remember the revenge effect well enough to know whether it, you know, we may come back to this and go, oh, actually, this was part two of it, a two-part episode. But essentially, I know that most of the strands that are loose ends, from what I do remember, are things that run through the whole series. There's something that will get resolved, and I also think I can reveal, without it being too much of a spoiler, that the revenge effect begins pretty much where this episode leaves off. But my argument is, Good. this is not part one of a two-parter because it's not a cliffhanger. Yeah, I I mean, I did get as far as uh, noting that it's like a different director and, and whatnot, so it's it's like a separate yeah, production. same writer, different like director. But then, then I'm not sure how much you, story you can set by that because the final two-parter of series two had two different directors on each part so that could be a production thing it's one of those things where where i think you can you can 
point to a number of episodes and you can say these are definitely one-parters and you can point to a couple of episodes or a couple of stories where you can say these are definitely two-parters but sometimes it's a bit of a grey area so I think probably this is one where you could go either way mm-hmm. well we'll uh, we've obviously treated it as uh, 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 two one-part episodes and next time is it the revenge effect is that the name of the next episode that is the name of the next episode yeah is it the revenge effect or just revenge effect the revenge effect (laughs) if you don't have anything else on this episode i have nothing else on this then we will leave it there and next time we'll be looking at the revenge effect simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always listeners i do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the 1953 George Pal extravaganza, The War of the Worlds, where we try to figure out what science or religion brings to the fight. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.